is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Across America, there's a battle being waged against our young and upcoming entrepreneurs, and it's got to be stopped. But it's not all doom and gloom, as our intrepid executive producer, Jesse Edwards, discovered people are beginning to fight back, and they're winning. It's a rite of passage that many of us experienced growing up in those dog days of summer. Sitting on the side of the road, selling lemonade to passers-by with hopes of earning an extra few bucks. For the kids, it's a life lesson in free market capitalism. For the adults, it's just kind of fun and cute to play along. Sure, you get some lemonade out of the deal, but it's more about humoring the child, right? such a simple and pure part of American culture. That is, until local and state laws become an issue. Take the case of the Knowles family in Denver, Colorado. Jennifer Knowles and her three young sons set up a lemonade stand on Memorial Day to raise money for a five-year-old boy in Indonesia who needed help due to extreme poverty. After running the stand for about an hour, the police came by and shut it down because according to Denver law, The kids needed a permit to sell lemonade. A permit that cost $100 plus $25 per day. We were devastated. My my oldest son, um, who was six, just turned seven, um, crying for hours. My four-year-old was standing uh, there right next to me when the police officer came by and was talking to us. And he just started to frown and just started to cry at the police officer and walked away. It truly, um, it was really upsetting. Every child should be able to have a lemonade stand in front of their house, whether we're in Denver or anywhere across the country. And I plan to um, stay on top of it with the city, possibly with the state, um, possibly if, it, if we can, you know, across the country. After starting a petition that received over 37,000 signatures, the Senate Business, Labor, and Technology Committee at the Colorado State Capitol met to debate Senate Bill 19-103, which prohibits any local government from requiring children to get a permit or license to run their own business. The bill states that a child's business must be a sufficient distance from a commercial business and can only be run on an occasional basis, no more than 84 days per year. The bill was signed into law on April 1st, 2019. It's a small legal victory, but this is far from an isolated incident. Little Andrea Green and her sister Zoe were breaking Texas law by operating a lemonade stand outside of their home without a permit. The seven- and eight-year-old sisters set up a lemonade stand around the corner from where they live in Overton, Texas, to raise money for a Father's Day present. We were doing just fine until the cops came. They shut us down. So we can um, raise money to get our dad somewhere, like uh, Splash Kingdom. I'm still kind of confused. I'm um, sad that we closed it down. When asked why these little girls' lemonade stand was shut down, Overton, Texas Chief of Police Clyde Carter had this to say. Lemonade, they cannot uh, just get over there and make lemonade and have it for sale on the side of the road without a permit. I'm not aware of exactly why. You see, Texas House Bill 970 allowed people to sell baked goods, candy, and other dry foods, but lemonade wasn't on the list and therefore illegal. That is until HB 234, the lemonade stand bill, was signed by Governor Abbott on June 10th of 2019. 
It states that a municipality, county, or other local public health authority may not adopt or enforce an ordinance, order, or rule that prohibits or regulates, including by requiring a license permit or fee, the occasional sale of lemonade or non-alcoholic beverages from a stand on private property or in a public park by an individual younger than 18 years of age. <gasps> Whew, that's a mouthful. So that's good. At least we're getting somewhere. In Sandy Springs, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta, the Clay family wanted to raise money to buy school supplies for local children in need. Here's the mom, Jenny Clay. We heard about a charity that was collecting for back-to-school supplies, and so we had the idea that we would do the lemonade stand and collect for that charity. A code enforcement officer came by right as we were setting up our stand and told us that we couldn't do the lemonade stand and that it was against Sandy Springs law, and so we were really disappointed. After locals heard what happened, the Clay family ended up raising $130 that day. It might not seem like much, but it was probably more than they would have made by selling lemonade. And it was enough to buy school supplies for three children. The following day, city officials visited the Clay family to apologize. They even donated $20 to the cause as well. That made Lily Clay's day. It brings me joy that we can help other kids that don't have any... Um, money for to get all this nice school supplies. There are dozens of stories like this all over the country, and people are taking a stand for the lemonade stand. As of May 2019, 16 states have passed laws allowing the unencumbered sale of lemonade by minors. A big part of this change is thanks to a brilliant marketing campaign by none other than Country Time Lemonade, with what they call Country Time Legal Aid. Whoever came up with this deserves some kind of award. Country Time Lemonade heard all about this, and they're just not having it. If you have a problem with your lemonade stand, the offices of Country Time Legal Aid are ready to take a stand for you. Lemonade also in the news this morning. Country Time has launched Legal Aid. Country Time Lemonade has created a team to help pay fines and get permits for kids across the land. They are starting a legal defense fund. They're totally serious. Hey, job, Country Time. I think I'm going to go buy some. Country Time Legal Aid will defend your kids' right to a lemonade stand and all the benefits they bestow. Any child fined for running a lemonade stand without a permit can have his or her parent apply for reimbursement. To apply, simply upload the image of your child's permit or fine along with the description of what your lemonade stand means to your child in his or her own words. The submission will be reviewed by the legal aid team, and if it complies with the terms, you will receive the exact amount to cover the permit or fine, up to $300. It's important to take a stand and to push back against arbitrary laws that don't make any sense. When life gives you lemons, let your kids open a lemonade stand. I'll have some lemonade, but I've only got a quarter. Then I guess you're going thirsty, loser. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, Jesse, taking a stand for lemonade stands. Stories across this great country. And my goodness, you got to love your country when you hear kids doing this for other kids in need. This is Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories. 
George Lucas was born in Modesto, California, the son of a paper supplies business. He was raised on a walnut ranch and attended Modesto Junior College before enrolling in the University of Southern California Film School. Lucas is known for creating the Star Wars and Indiana Jones franchises and founding Lucasfilm, LucasArts, and Industrial Light and Magic. He served as chairman of Lucasfilms before selling it to the Walt Disney Company in 2012 for a reported price tag of $4.05 billion. But when George Lucas was just 18, he nearly lost his life in an automobile accident. Here's Lucas with the rest of his story. I think about that sometimes. The thing that the auto accident, I was a terrible student in high school, and the thing that the auto accident did, and it happened just as I graduated, so I was at this sort of crossroads, but it made me apply myself more because I realized more than anything else uh, what a thin thread we hang on in in life. And I really wanted to make something out of my life. And um, I was in an accident that, in theory, no one could survive. Uh, so it was like, well, I'm here, and every day now is an extra day. I've been given an extra day. So i got to make the most of it. And then the next day is I've been given two extra days. And I've sort of, you can't help in that situation but get into a mindset like that, which is you've been given this gift, and every single day is a gift. Uh, and I wanted to make the most of it. Um, before, when I was in high school, I just sort of wandered around and, you know, I wanted to be a car mechanic and I wanted to race cars and I, you know, I just, the idea of trying to make something out of my life, you know, wasn't really a priority. Um, but uh, I really, what the accident was allow me to apply myself at school. I got great grades. Uh, eventually, I got very excited about anthropology and about the social sciences and psychology. And... Um, uh, I was able to push my photography even further and eventually discovered film and in film schools and you actually go to school to learn how to make movies. Uh, and it was like, you know, suddenly everything came together in one place. All my likes, everything I actually seemed to have talent for was right there. And I said, hey, this is it. I'm, I, I can do this really well. I really love to do it. And from then on, I just, you know, took off. But before that, I was kind of wandering, as I think a lot of students do. I decided to go to film school because I loved the idea of making films. I love photography. Um, and um, everybody said it was a crazy thing to do because in those days, nobody made it into the film business. I mean, just unless you were related to somebody, there was no way in. So everything was oh, silly. You're never going to get a job. Uh, but I, I wasn't moved by that. I set the goal of getting through film school. Um, and just then focused on getting to that level because I didn't, you know, I didn't know where I was going to go after that. Uh, I wanted to make documentary films, uh, and eventually I got into the goal of once I got to school of making a film. One of the most telling things about film schools, you got a lot of students in those days, especially. It's not quite so much today, but wandering around saying, "Oh, I wish I could make a movie. I wish I could make a movie." You know, I can't get in this class. I can't get any, you know, first class I had was an animation class. It wasn't a production class. Um, I had a history class and, a, and an animation class. And in the animation class, they gave us one minute of film to put onto the animation camera to operate it to see how you could move left, move right, make it go up and down. And it was a test to see 
um, you know, and then the, the teacher would, you know, had certain requirements that you had to do. You had to make it go up, you had to make it go down, and then the teacher would look at it and say, oh, yes, you maneuvered this machine to do these things. Um, and I took that one minute of film and made it into a movie. Uh, and it was a movie that won, like, uh, you know, 20 or 25 awards, you know, in every film festival in the world, and kind of changed the whole animation department. And, and, and meanwhile, all the other guys were going around saying, oh, I wish I could make a movie, I wish I was in a production class. And so then I got into another class, and it wasn't really a production class, but I managed to get some film, and I made a movie. And I made lots of movies while I was in school, while everybody else was running around saying, oh, I wish I could make a movie, I wish I could make a movie. I'd had a very, very difficult time in my first two pictures. And um, when I started working on Star Wars, uh, my second film, American Graffiti, had not come out yet. And um, so um, in the beginning, it wasn't something anybody was interested in. And um, I'd taken it to a couple of studios, and they had turned it down. And then one um, studio executive saw American Graffiti and loved it. Uh, and I took him the proposal. Uh, he said, uh, you know, I don't understand this, but uh, I think you're a great filmmaker, and I'm going to invest in you. I'm not going to invest in this project. And, uh, and that's really how it got made. All of my films have been very hard to understand uh, at the script stage because they're very different. Um, at the time I, would, I did them, they were um, not conventional. And um, as a result, it was, it's a very hard sell to get them off the ground with a studio. Um, you know, the executives can only think in terms of what they've seen. It's hard for them to think in terms of what has never been done before. That's made it con considerably more difficult for me to go against the conventional wisdom, to go do something a little bit different. Um, it's funny when you look back now because everybody's sort of copied those films, so now they are so ingrained in the culture that it's really almost impossible to think that there was a point where those things were completely odd and unique. The funny thing is that the two movies I did that were my conventional movies, uh, at least that I've directed, um, were slight twists on very, very, very conventional movies. Uh, one was, uh, you know, teenage hot rod movies, which were made by American International Pictures, which were sort of the lowest rung of the movie ladder. And then uh, the other one was uh, Republic Serials, uh, Saturday morning serials uh, from the 30s, which were, you know, sort of an ancient lowest rung on the ladder. And so I was taking, in, in terms of genre, I was taking the lowest... Uh, uh, genre that was available and then I was twisting it and making it into something completely different and something that was um, you know more mainstream in terms of the quality and and uh, acceptability of the of the modern movie going audience and um, I think the, the the prejudice against those films was really that they were they were cheap B movies not that they were so out there those were movies that I loved when I was younger, and I just when I I came from a very um, avant-garde documentary kind of filmmaking uh, world. I I like cinema verite documentaries, and I like non-story, non-character um, tone poems uh, that were being done in San Francisco at that time, and that's the filmmaking that I was interested in. Uh, Francis Coppola, who was my mentor, sort of he's a writer and uh, works with actors stage director and I said you've got to learn how to do this and so I took him up on the challenge wrote my own screenplays 
uh, learn to write uh, and work with actors. And American Graffiti was really my first attempt at doing something um, uh, mainstream, so to speak. And uh, even it was so, one, it was in a genre that was looked down upon, uh, but I loved when I was a kid. Uh, it was about my life as I grew up, so I cared about it a lot. And then on top of it, it was in a style that was, um, was different from what everybody was used to. It was intercutting four stories that didn't relate to each other, which nobody had really done before. Uh, now it's sort of the standard fare for television. Um, and um, it had music all the way through it, uh, not just score, but actual um, uh, songs from the period, and that is something that nobody had done before. And they, they just sort of described it as a musical montage with no characters and no story. And so it was very, very hard to get that off the ground. And on top of that, it was a, a B movie. I almost got it uh, set up at American International Pictures, where they liked doing those kinds of movies, uh, but it was too strange for them. Uh, in terms of the style, uh, and uh, Star Wars was kind of the same situation where it was a genre they weren't that interested in. Science fiction was not something that uh, did well at the box office. It dealt with robots and and Wookies and and things that um, uh, you know, generally most people they couldn't read it and say I understand what this is all about. They just were completely confused by it, and um, uh, really on top of that, it was it was aimed at being a young a film for young people, and uh, most of the studios said, "Look, that's Disney's. Disney does that. The rest of us can't do that, so we don't want to get in that area." Uh, so I had so many strikes against me when I did that. I was lucky that I found a studio executive that just believed in me as a filmmaker, and just disregarded the material itself. And my goodness, some studios missed a big one. I mean, imagine passing Star Wars. But everybody did, it sounds like. By the way, I love what Lucas said. Executives could only think in terms of what they'd seen, not what they hadn't seen before. And we find that with so many of our innovators. An innovator extraordinaire, a film innovator, George Lucas's story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of George Lucas. And my goodness, we learned from the early part of this story about an early accident that changed how young George thought about the rest of his life. Every single day is a gift, and I wanted to make the most of it. Let's continue with the story of George Lucas. When I talk to film students or people interested in getting in the film business, it always comes up, you know, what do you do, what do you do? I say, well, learning to make films is very easy. Learning what to make films about is very hard. And what you really got to do is focus on learning as much about life and about the various aspects of it uh, first, and then learn just the techniques of making a movie, uh, because that stuff you can pick up pretty quickly. But having a really good understanding of history, literature, psychology, um, sciences are very, very important to actually being able to, to make movies. 
and it took me years to get my first film off the ground. And uh, as I, I talk to film students now, especially I say the easiest job you'll ever get is to try to make your first film. Because that's the easy one to get is the first film because nobody knows whether you can make a film or not. Uh, you've made a bunch of little projects, you've shown off you have talent, and you talk real fast and you convince somebody that you should be doing a feature and they let you do a feature. After you've done that feature, then you really have a, a heck of a difficult time getting your second film off the ground. Because then they look at your first film and they go, oh, well, we don't want you, to, we don't want you anymore. When you're a beginning filmmaker, you're, you're, you're desperate to survive. The most important thing in the end is survival uh, and being able to get to your next picture. Um, I ended up uh, in a funny situation where I had written a screenplay, but the screenplay was so big that I couldn't possibly make it into a movie. So I went down and I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll get rid of the first two-thirds of it, the, two, the second two acts, and I'll just do the first act. I can make that into a movie. That's sort of big enough. Um, but then I had all this other work that I'd done. I spent a whole year doing this, and I said, you know, I'm not going to give this up. I will make all three movies. And I'll make this into three movies. That's the way I'm going to do it. I won't just put this on the shelf and forget it and say, okay, I'm doing this movie. And at that point, I made a pact with myself that I was going to make all three movies. And in order to do that, as I started to make my deal with 20th Century Fox, um, I acquired the sequel rights because I didn't want them to bury the sequel. I wanted to make these movies, and I was determined to make these movies, regardless of whether they wanted to or the movie made any money or not. And then uh, I got the merchandising rights, which weren't anything at the time, because there was no such thing as merchandising on movies. Some TV stuff, but not movies. Uh, their, their lifespan is just too short. Um, but I figured I could make posters, I could make T-shirts, and... You know, I could publicize the movie, and hopefully people would go see it. And because the studio, you, you, everything is sort of a, a a struggle again to survive. Which is the studio won't put enough money into your movie to get it into the theaters to do the advertising. So I will say, well, I can't. I don't have any money. I don't have any. But I can maybe make a T-shirt deal, and I can maybe make a poster deal, and I can maybe get these out at science fiction conventions and things before the movie comes out, and promote the movie. So I did it as sort of self-preservation. Um, I'm a San Francisco filmmaker. I'm an independent filmmaker. I don't have a lot of resources, so I really have to think about how I'm going to get not only through this movie, but how I'm going to get it promoted and how I'm going to then hopefully have it make enough money to allow me to get to do the next movie. And um, as it turned out, um, the film was so successful, uh, we were able to make toy deals, uh, and we began to start the whole idea of action figures, of tie-ins, of toys that go along with movies. And um, over the years, that's one of the things that's helped me stay independent, be able to finance my own movies, uh, and uh, stay in business, really. Success is a very difficult thing. It's much more difficult than one might think. And um, uh, when I first had a successful movie, which was American Graffiti, fortunately it wasn't, it was huge, but it wasn't so huge in terms of monetary things and uh, and it came so slowly that I was able to assimilate it a little bit. Star Wars was much more difficult uh, and I had a lot of friends who had been very had become very successful and they said boy watch out boy when that one hits you're really gonna be thrown for a loop. I said oh no no I, I went through American Graffiti I can handle this I know you know but when Star Wars finally you know the reality of it hit and all of the intended things that go on around it hit um, psychologically, it's a very, very difficult thing to cope with. And um, you really need time 
after an event like that in your life, especially if it comes very fast, uh, to assimilate what it is that's happened to you and how everybody relates to you and how your life is. And um, uh, it's, it's hard to explain exactly what happens psychologically uh, because a lot of the constraints that you've had are now gone. And st instead of you know, scrambling to find one opportunity somewhere uh, to do something, you suddenly are, you know, have an endless supply of opportunities to do anything. So instead of um, you know, trying to uh, coerce somebody into saying yes, you're always desperate at that point to learn how to say no. Yeah. So you, because the first thing you do, and I've seen it with a lot of people, is you know you go out and you say yes to everything because it's all wonderful, wonderful things that are offered to you, and here you spent your whole life just begging and you know using every means at your disposal to get one person or two people to say yes to your project or to yes to yes I'll do this yes you know, and then suddenly everybody says yes. Suddenly everybody wants you to do everything and anything you want, and uh, it's then you have to start learning how to say no. And uh, tons of opportunities come your way, wonderful opportunities, and you just you but you can't do them all. Uh, and no matter how much you think you can deal with it, you know you can't. You need to have a lot of close family around you, a lot of friends uh, to keep you honest, and um, take your time. You know, take a year and just slow everything down a little bit, and 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 get away from the success part. I made it a habit that I still keep when a movie comes out I always go off on a beach so I miss all the craziness that goes on all the you know the hoopla and the hype and the success and how much it's making or whether it's doing good or whether it's doing bad I just miss it all I just go off on a beach I don't talk to anybody and a couple weeks later I come back and it's all over with and so I heard the results but I didn't have to live through them and I think it's a healthy way to handle success I mean don't don't wallow in it Keep it at arm's length. The most important thing to me is that you know I've raised three kids, and I know that'll be the most important accomplishment of my life, and it's the most easily obtainable, uh, especially because uh, all you have to do is pay attention, uh, and it's hard work, and um, most people uh, don't realize that that's the real gift they're getting. Uh, in terms of uh, goals and success and accomplishments, uh, on the on the professional side, um, I've helped move uh, cinema from a chemical-based medium to a digital-based medium. Uh, I guess that'll be one of the landmarks. Um, and then I've left left these stories, these little tales that have been imprinted on. On the media, you know, uh, I guess it'll be digital by the time it's finished, um, which you know will or will not be of interest to people in the future. Um, I've done the best I can. They've obviously made a big mark while I'm here. Um, but the interesting thing you find out if you study history is that you know you can make a huge mark during your lifetime, and you know a lifetime later it's forgotten, and you make something that you don't think is very important during your lifetime. And you'll, you know, it lasts for a thousand years. Um, so you can't really focus too much on that part of it, because you really don't know what what history is going to throw at you, in terms of what's important and what's not important. You simply have to do the best you can, 
And you've been listening to George Lucas, and I love what he said about success. Success is a difficult thing. You need time after it and an event like I experienced to assimilate what happened. Don't wallow in success, he said. Keep it at arm's length. And the idea that he would go to a beach to just stay away from all the very things that most people want, that fame, that attention. He understood how dangerous it could be. We want to thank the people at the Academy of Achievement for providing this great audio. Go to achievement.org. There are stories galore there. George Lucas's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. And the great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIndustries.com. That's Coke, K-O-C-H, Industries.com. And today, Robbie brings us the story of Manny Singh. I was born and brought up in India. Even though I used to live in one of the more advanced cities in India, still... uh, there were some basic issues which sometimes can be taken for granted in the U.S., but over there we were taking shower and suddenly the water would run off. It's just like a common problem. We used to fill buckets of water before they would turn it off and have like a six or eight or ten hour gap where there was no water available. Normally they would start at uh, maybe eight till about eleven in the morning and then it would shut off and then uh, come back in the evening for a few hours. But that changed so much from week to week. And I faced those problems as I was growing up. And as I said, that's in the developed part of India. If you go to villages and some other remote areas, it was a lot worse. There were no toilets, and people used to travel long distance with their buckets on their head and bring those back. Everything was impacted because of water-related problems. Even now, 65 to 70% of India's wastewater isn't treated. Wastewater is when we flush our toilets or wash and our sink, all the stuff, everything gets collected. That's the municipal wastewater and goes into a central place where it's treated. The other wastewater is from all the industries. And if the wastewater is not treated, all we are doing is passing on the problem to the drinking water because now it's contaminating the surface water bodies, which makes treating that incoming water more challenging. In 1995, Manny moved his family from India to North America. After studying and working in Toronto, he eventually settled down in the United States. Initially, it was driven by a better education. I think uh, in U.S. and Canada, the quality of education is much better. And after that, ability to make a difference is much more 
in western part i would say the resources that are available to do top level research if you look at number of new ideas that are being created number of new patents that are being filed proportionally it's a much more in the developed countries just because more resources are available on the very first day when i joined work i came in a suit and a tie and my supervisor said we are going to do research on wastewater treatment uh, let's go to one of the wastewater plants and there uh, we were doing a pilot study which required filling up a pilot with buckets of uh, wastewater so i saw the engineers taking the buckets and getting their hands dirty and filling the pilot and these are nasty wastewater stuff and i was here in a suit and tie and obviously i also jumped and took my tie off and uh, took those buckets and started filling a pilot tank with wastewater so that was a first day i would i shouldn't say shock but realization that it's it's a slightly different environment uh, If I was back in India the chances are there would be like five people there sitting and uh, waiting and they will do all this work but the fact that I got my hands dirty made me grow in a much better way In 2011 Manny joined Coke Membrane Systems where he now serves as the president So in order to put in perspective the magnitude of problems we have kind of I want to share two examples one of them is the fact that there are more cell phones than number of toilets in the world right now if you think about that for a minute and how the priorities can sometimes be misaligned and the impact of that is kind of in the second fact which is every 2 minutes or so a child dies because of water related issues coke membrane's vision is a filtration for a better future and we develop membrane based solutions to address water and wastewater problems the membrane is like a sophisticated filter think about a hollow straw with millions of holes in it and each hole is like a thousand times smaller than a human hair and that's what membrane is so it's a, such a small tiny holes and that allows a clean water to go through but keeps all the nasty stuff away because the holes are so small so nothing passes through Brazil had a pretty serious water shortage there was no rainfall lowering the level of reservoirs there and those levels were like at about 10% of what their normal level was so it was a very very challenging situation it's a very congested area so there's not a lot of room for expanding the water or wastewater treatment plants so whatever technology had to be implemented to solve this problem it had to be compact it had to fit in the existing footprint that they have So we put a system there where we took the existing wastewater treatment plant and retrofitted that with membrane systems. So by doing that that particular site was able to get 5 to 6 times more flow without expanding their footprint. If in a conventional system they can treat a million gallons per day, the chances are if you put a membrane system there then the same footprint can treat anywhere between let's say 4 to 10 times the flow rate of which is like 4 to 10 million gallons per day now instead of 1 million gallons per day we also provide membrane solutions for wine filtration beer filtration and juice and a number of other industries if you open up your fridge and take orange juice 
there's a high likelihood that that orange juice was filtered using coke membranes. Juice which has pulp, it has to have a consistent amount of pulp. So what they would normally do is take membranes, filter it, that either that's a pulp-free juice, which is the filtered using membranes, or if it has to have a certain amount of pulp, they will mix pulp with that filtered juice so that it's very consistent. I don't think uh, anybody wants to drink too much pulp on one day and the next day they open and then it's a little pulp. So that quality control consistency is required and membranes help to give that consistent clean pulp which can either be shipped as is or it can be blended with controlled pulp. There's a lot of projects and a lot of success using membranes to make fine wine. Beer filtration is the next one coming up. How do we get beer quality to go up? How do you maintain the foam on top of the beer? How long does the foam last? It's, it's pretty amazing. What is the value to customer when they are looking at these products, which we kind of sometimes take granted, we just drink beer, we don't really think about what goes behind that. How long does the foam last on the beer? Is it a five seconds or is it seven seconds? How can we develop membranes which does not remove the components which are helping the quality of beer and which removes the component which is hurting the quality of beer? It was pretty interesting when I joined Coke, uh, I had a certain mindset. In my first six months or so, we were developing a new technology and I was talking to David Koch at that time and I thought that I want some investment to make two or three pilots and each pilot can be like a hundred thousand dollar machine. And I went to David and said, hey, I want uh, this three, four hundred thousand dollars to build this pilot so we can test this new technology at these places. And right away, like within two minutes, he said, no, we should be building ten pilots. And uh, it was a complete opposite discussion. Normally, I would expect I go and justify why I need this money and provide all the background calculations. But here it was opposite, and I was trying to say, hey, do we really need 10? But that was the mindset shift, which uh, I think is how can we do things quickly? How can we invest more in the money so we can generate that value that we are trying to create as quickly as possible? Being a private company does allow us certain, I guess, benefits where we are not held by short-term expectations of our shareholders. So in a public company, every quarter somebody has to go out and tell how much money did they make and a lot of decisions that are made can be influenced by that share price or whatever the expectations are from our shareholders. But as a private company, I think that's the one big value I found after joining Coke, that everything that we were doing was focused on creating long-term value for our customers. Coke invests 90% of its earnings back into business. Uh, I find it really motivating and I think sometimes that can be misunderstood uh, on what we do at Coke. I really believe that we have to have passion in everything that we do. This is what drives me to work every day. It's something that keeps me motivated. I've got two sons and when I go home and tell them what we do, we are solving a real problem in the world. We are creating value which is very easy to understand and that kind of drives me and motivates me to keep going. And great job on that piece, Robbie. And you were listening to Manny Singh, president of Coke Membrane Systems. And you heard it from him, the passion there in everything we do. And so many people who work 
We're private companies in this country. Well, we're in the same exact position. We want to add value. We want to do things well and deliver value and service uh, to our customers. How can we do things quickly and generate value quickly are the animating questions on Manny Singh's mind. Foam on beer, pulp consistency, treated water around the world, things that we take for granted. Our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries, Manny Singh's story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we like to tell stories about everything here on this show. Art, commerce, history, faith. And this one is a local story. I mean, it is a story that, well, it could happen anywhere in the country and does happen anywhere in the country. And Sammy Smith works here at Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And he's the director of character development for Ole Miss football. Uh, with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Sammy Smith, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Sammy, let's start where we always start when we do our in-depths with uh, people we talk to on the show in our in-depth segments. And talk about where you were born and talk about your parents. Well, I was born in a little small town uh, in Florida. Actually, the town that I was born in was not small. It was Orlando. I was born in Orlando, uh, Memorial Hospital. But I, uh, my parents lived in a little small town called Zellwood. Uh, very few people there. Um, it was a community that was a migrant community uh, known for farming. Uh, one of the things that Zellwood, Florida, was famous for was corn. Uh, we had a, a corn festival every May that people would come from all over the country to come be a part of. So um, I grew up there in that area. I had a great mom and dad, uh, two younger brothers, and uh, uh, that's where I spent the first you know 18 years of my life. I went to uh, uh, Popka High School, which is a school just north of Orlando, Florida. And, and talk about the the community, the the mixture of people who live there. You said it was a migrant community. Talk about the the mix of folks that live there, the types of people who are your neighbors. Well, um, the community that I was in was was more of a black community, but uh, across the tracks, you know, we had uh, uh, Caucasian people. There were some uh, Hispanic people that lived in the area. Uh, so it was a it was a nice mixture of folks. Um, I went to school with uh, uh, both Hispanics and uh, Caucasian folks, so it wasn't like I was in a in a community that was just uh, segregated or anything. You know, we were all um, a part of a, a great little community in Zellwood, and some of my uh, dearest and longest friends now are some of those people that I grew up with as a child. That's great. And talk about then your when did you first know you had. Uh, some athletic talent. Talk about your first discovery about your your abilities uh, on the gridiron and in other places. Talk about sports in general. If something tells me you may have been good at more than one sport, Sammy. Well, I started playing football in the streets of Zellwood. We played sandlock football. You don't see kids doing that a lot now. No, you but don't. But, man, we used to uh, have some hard, you know, no pads tackling football and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, it was something that we were raised doing. And I think that's why our football program at Apopka, even to this day, is still is a great program. Um, 
So just love the game of football. Uh, my dad played football when he was in, a younger man and in high school. And uh, he grew up in a time when, of course, there was a, it was during segregation. So he didn't have an opportunity to go off to college. But So I always had to hear about uh, how great a football player he was. And uh, they used to call my dad the goose. And I had to hear stories all the time about, man, Whenever we went to watch your dad play, we we we, we waiting for him to make a big play so we could say the goose is on the loose. <laughs> so, you know, that's the community that I grew up in. I grew up uh, probably at the age of 10 years old. I noticed that I had a lot of uh, special abilities because I was able to play with the kids that were, you know, 13, 14 years old and, you know, mix it up right with them. And your size, by the time you were a senior, uh, talk about your size, your speed, and what what you did on the gridiron. You know how you uh, ran, the number of yards you accumulated. Uh, you had some kind of high school record, Sammy. Well, I um, grew up loving track and field. Uh, I was a sprinter, but I was a big sprinter. Um, all through middle school, I won you know county track meets in the hundred and two hundred meters, and then I went to high school and. You know, in high school, I was a big tailback. I was 215, 20 pounds, and, you know, I was a 4-3, guy. I was a 10, 300-meter 10, guy, state champion, 100-meter, state champion, 200-meter guy, and ran track all through college and high school, and uh, just God just blessed me with a lot of ability. So I, I came out during the era where my favorite player was Herschel Walker, so and I kind of modeled my game after him. I, I I was in that mold of a Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson type tailback. Yeah, and those were guys that had the size and the speed. One at Auburn, of course, and uh, one at the University of Georgia. And so you you get all kinds of offers. What's this like as a high school senior? And so many of us see this this pressure on young athletes, but there's also some great opportunities. And I would assume that there, you had a lot of great coaches calling on you and your family. Um, how did your family handle all that, by the way? And how did they keep you humble when all this was happening? Because, my goodness, it's so easy for a young athlete to forget that they're human beings and they're like everyone else in the school. How did they keep you in place? How did you come to the decision to pick the college you picked? Well, I had a great high school football coach, Coach uh, Chip Gerke. And uh, I was blessed enough to have uh, a, a couple of guys that kind of went on before me out of my high school uh, one of the guys that, that that grew up in my neighborhood that was probably, you know, five, four or five years older than me. His name was Cedric Anderson. He was one of the first ones from our high school to to go big time college football, and he went to Ohio State. And uh, so I had the opportunity to for him to come back during the summers and you know kind of talk to us and encourage us of how to uh, what to expect on the next level. And I started going to FSU football camps, I think, when I was probably in eighth grade. And, and that's I, Florida State. Florida State. And I, I just fell in love with Coach Bowden, uh, his staff that was there. Uh, University of Florida was an hour and a half away from me, and I would go up sometimes to watch their games. But uh, Tallahassee was my draw. You know, that's, it, it kind of drew me there, and I, I just loved that community. Uh, had a little um, – uncertainty about where I was going to go when I was being recruited because I was recruited by some great people. Uh, Vince Dooley, I had a great amount of respect for him at Georgia. And again, I told you earlier, I was a Herschel Walker fan, so I loved Georgia. And then Bo Schembechler out at Michigan, I visited there and just just loved Coach Schembechler. So, you know, three of the probably best coaches at that time were coaches that I really had an affinity for. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I just – couldn't see myself going anywhere other than being in Tallahassee and playing for Coach Bowden and the coaching staff that was there. And, 
and uh, the great class that we had that came in that year. You know, Deion Sanders, a good friend of, friend of mine now that was a part of that freshman class that we brought in in 1985 at Florida State. Well, the Florida boy stays home in Florida. When we come back, more of the life of Sammy Smith, an Oxford man now, a Florida man most of his life, uh, but we like to call him a fellow Oxonian. And when we come back, more of Sammy's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. In our in-depth hour today, we spend it with someone local. And you may not know the name. If you're a football fan, you do, and you remember it, uh, Sammy Smith. And we left off with Sammy choosing Florida State and a legendary coach, Bobby Bowden. And talk about, first of all, what you saw in Bobby, and we've had Bobby on the show. And talk about what your parents saw in Bobby, because I'm sure your parents had something to do with his choice. If you have any kind of parents, I know my parents had a lot to do with almost every major decision I had in my life. Even today, I still talk to my dad about things I'm going to do next. Uh, talk about those things. Well, just just what a great recruiter Coach Bowden was. I mean, when you hear the stories about how he come come into uh, players' homes and uh, the immediate impact that he had on the moms, well, those are true because he came into my house and uh, uh, I knew right away that. Certainly, I wanted to go to Florida State, but just him coming and interacting with my mom and dad just kind of you know stamped the seal. I mean, they loved him. Uh, they knew that he would be a coach that uh, would would care for us. You know, our, his players would care for me. Uh, would go out of the way to make sure that um, I was doing things the right way. Um, that would be a, a father figure towards uh, me away from home. Uh, he was just a great man, a man that uh, had, you know wore, wore his faith on his sleeves and on his shoulders. He was just a great, great, great man. And uh, uh, without a doubt, probably the most influential man I've had in my life outside of my dad. Uh, he was just a great, great, great coach to play for. And by the way, we hear this over and over again. We've heard this on our, on our hour on Bear Bryant. We heard it on our hour with John Wooden, guys talking about Coach Wooden 10, 20, 30, 40 years after having experience with him. Indeed, when we played the uh, funeral eulogies of Coach Wooden, mm-hmm. it was remarkable to see men in their 50s, 67, and this went beyond race, class, creed. It was, he loved me like a father. Mm-hmm. He was hard on me, but I needed that kind of hard. But he was never mean to me, and he's always building me up. And he always expected more out of me than I did. And that was really the remarkable mm-hmm. part of Coach Wooden's legacy. And by the way, we learned that Coach had a deep, deep and abiding faith. Mm-hmm. Um, ESPN rarely covers these matters, the faith of so many of these coaches. They sort of leave it out and shame on them. Again, again this faith crosses races. We did Eddie Robinson's story. And my goodness, the degree to which he appealed to the moms and the mm-hmm. dads as he recruited people and young, young men in particular to grambling was an integral part of his life. Same with Bear Bryant. Talk a bit about some of the things you learned as a young man playing for uh, Coach Bowden. Well, you know, you don't know it at the time, but uh, coaches in general and, and people that are impacting your lives can speak things into your life that, uh, that, that, that don't show up until later in life. And, uh, 
Uh, that's what happened with me. I, I knew who Coach Bowden was. I always had a great relationship with him, uh, knew what he stood for. And it would be later on in my life uh, when I would go through some some difficult times that I would remember something that he said, you know, that would encourage me to, uh, to get up and to keep going and to keep pressing forward. And, uh, uh, again, just a tremendous uh, leader. Um, I've had the opportunity now working for FCA for about six years now on many occasions to be at different places where he's speaking for FCA and I'm the one that's uh, introducing him and sharing, you know, a story or two here. And uh, I get more gratitude out of that uh, than I ever did as a player because I get to really express, you know, who he is to me, uh, what he's meant to me. And it's not even about the football, but it's about the, the other life lessons and things that I've uh, learned through his uh, tutelage. Indeed, and you wish that sometimes kids in schools had that kind of tutelage inside the school mm-hmm. and not just on the gridiron. And it's something we talk about time and again is some of these unique relationships that get forged between coaches and players, and yet teachers don't get that same latitude to either punish, reward. Mm-hmm. They're sort of restricted to just handling the kid on the curriculum level, mm-hmm. level and not on the moral level and the development of character level, which is in the end what life's all about. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your performance on the gridiron, Sammy. I mean, you had quite a career at Florida State. Highlight it for us. Top line for folks who aren't football fans, what that career looked like at FSU. Well, I came in um, really a highly rated offensive player. I think I was the top running back in the country that year coming out and uh, went there with great expectations and uh, certainly there were expectations that I placed on myself uh, too. And uh, uh, Florida State at that time was sort of uh, in the bottom, you know, feeder of college. We, they weren't really that good, but uh, I saw something in Florida State that I thought uh, could be tremendous down the road. And uh, when I signed there and got Deion Sanders to sign and uh, we had guys, uh, Chip Ferguson, uh, Peter Tom Willis, just to name a few guys, uh, Pat Tomlin, and we had an amazing football class, and uh, I saw the opportunity that down the road we would be a great football program. And and to just see that happen, I think, in 1987 was when I had a breakout year. I had my best year there at Florida State, and, and uh, man, we had a fun offense. You know, we ran the ball. We threw it around a lot. Um, I think I averaged over seven yards a carry that year. Um, I, I used to always – uh, tell my running back coach, Coach Billy Sexton, man, you guys should have gave me the ball about seven or eight more times a game. I, I might have been able to get 2,000 yards. But, um, you know, just a joy, enjoyable time there. I held the single-season rushing record there, I think, for about seven or eight years prior to uh, work done coming and having a spectacular year. And certainly uh, his record has since been broke, broken by Dalvin Cook. And now we got a, a young one down there now that, that could uh, – rewrite all the record books if he stays there for four years, uh, Cam Akers. Oh, you bet, you bet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, and rooting for them, I know, because so many athletes I know, they love, having, mm-hmm. you know, they love having the records, but you know, great, great athletes are mm-hmm. also rooting for that next generation to surpass them if they can. Let's talk about uh, all that attention. You're, you're now getting ready to go into the NFL. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of you guys aren't, that you're playing with aren't going to make it to the NFL. You're now picked and you're drafted. Uh, there's a lot of joy in that, but yet you're leaving some of the guys mm-hmm. behind too. What's that like, um, and how do you handle all that? Because now you're going to the big leagues, and with that comes a lot of accolades, a lot of, well, all kinds of other things come that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, money comes that way, something you didn't have like you were about to have. And talk about that. Put, put, put us in your shoes mm-hmm. as a young man about to go from a, 
a guy with maybe enough scratch and enough money in your pocket to take your girl out to Denny's, and now you're a multimillionaire overnight. Well, I tell you, that that's one of the, the, the things I enjoy most about uh, the role I have now and the position I'm in now is that, um, you know, you go through things in life and, 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 and you maybe they're not the best things. Sometimes they are good. Uh, but any of those uh, situations are benefit to other people. And uh, I get to share that, that opportunity that I had years ago to become an NFL football player and um, the, the, the good choices that I made, the bad choices that I made that would hopefully uh, encourage uh, young men to uh, do things the right way, you know, see things a little different. Because at that age, I think it's no different now than it was then. Um, you, you, you think you're invincible. Uh, you're getting ready to have uh, the time of your life. And uh, you don't really realize that, man, that, that God has blessed you with this opportunity. But that opportunity is, is, is uh, finite. You know, it's not an infinite opportunity. It's going to come and it's going to go. And uh, what you do with that small window that God has given you to be a, a professional football player matters. And uh, so, you know, uh, I was excited just like anyone else would be that I was going to be able to do for my parents, going to be able to have things that I wanted to have and uh, uh, be able to create a life for myself. I was married at the time with a with a little girl, so I was excited about being able to provide for my family and uh, take care of my, my little girl and my wife, but certainly um, um, made some choices and, 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 and mistakes that uh, cost me dearly. Talk to us now. You're, you're in the NFL. Um, who, who drafts you? It's, again, a Florida team. It's the Miami Dolphins. Um, who are you playing with? Who's your coach? What's going on? And talk about your NFL career. Well, I was drafted in 1989 by the Miami Dolphins, as you mentioned. Uh, coach Don Shula was my coach. Uh, Dan Marino was my quarterback. We had great, great players there. Uh, Mark Duper, Mark Clayton, receivers, Jim Jensen. Um, but but that was what that was. You know, I got an opportunity to play in my home state and was excited about the opportunity to play for the Miami Dolphins and uh, uh, was really looking forward to having a great career there. And uh you know, as, as, as things would turn out, uh, it wasn't the career that I really expected. You know, I, one of the things I, I share with uh, our young men now is because a lot of these young men, they come from small communities. I left a little small town of Zellwood. I went to Tallahassee, which at the time seemed like a metropolis to me, but it was small. And then to leave there and to go to Miami was a, certainly a life-changing event for me. Um, um, just a, a whole different world down in Miami you know, for, for a small town boy like myself and uh, uh, got involved with uh, uh, different people, met a lot of different people and just uh, got exposed to a whole different world than I was really used to. Yeah, and it's hard to prepare anybody for something mm-hmm. like that. You can tell them about it, you can lecture them about it, but one day they got to actually experience it themselves and make some choices mm-hmm. and they're going to make some good ones and you can bet at that age they're almost guaranteed to make some bad ones no matter yes. what the upbringing. It's just, that's life. We all make good and bad choices and hopefully we can learn from them. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Sammy Smith from small town Florida to big time football in Florida and to the NFL and the rest of this story, well, it just gets better. It gets more complicated, and it gets deeper and more beautiful as we continue it. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Story.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation, our in-depth conversation, and we love digging in and doing deep dives with some of the big leaders in this country, and you've heard us do segments on all kinds of them, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to our leadership series and the beginning of our in-depth series, and we continue again with Sammy Smith. 1990 is a tough year for you, Sammy, and let's start first with the loss of your Mm two-month-old son, Jared, to infant death syndrome. By the way, on this show, we spend a month um, honoring the loss of, of sudden death mm-hmm. uh, and infant, de- infant loss and, and, of course, miscarriages, too. Um, not enough time is spent on this. And millions and millions of Americans, women in particular, uh, when they go through a miscarriage, it is simply the worst moment of their mm-hmm. life. And yet, because it's not a born baby, well, a lot of people just sort of discount it and they don't understand that woman to that woman mm-hmm. and to that husband. That was a baby that just uh, was lost. And yeah. talk about that loss and what it, what it did to you, Sammy. Well, that, that, that was a time in my life when I believed that uh, God was really moving and working some things and really trying to get me in a, in a state in my life to where I would, would really seek him, you know, seek God and, and, and understand and, and realize where all the blessings had come from me. I think at, at some point in my life during that time, I kind of forgot where I came from. And it started really with uh, uh, my career that year, that season. I had uh, a really bad, uh, it wasn't that bad, but I had a knee injury in uh, preseason football that kept me out of the preseason and had to come back and perform and didn't perform that well. And and then I had to, this happened with my son. Um, and my son was two months old. i never forget that night. It was a uh, a bye week, actually, and I was home. I uh, went to Orlando that weekend and um, left Miami. And that same night that I left to go to Orlando, something told me, go home. So I left a bunch of friends that were hanging out with me at, at one of the clubs there. And and I got in my car and drove back to Miami. Now, mind you, I just drove three and a half hours to spend the weekend down there. But something was drawing me back home. And I would get home about... Uh, two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, my wife didn't even know I was coming home, and the first place I went to was my son's crib. And when I reached in there to to, to check on my son, I felt this cold body, and you know, yet passed. And I know that that was a that was a God moment. That was a God thing. I, I know that He wanted me to be there. He wouldn't have wanted my wife to wake up that next morning and be there. And I'm waiting in Orlando, and she's in Miami, and we've got a son that's passed. So. Um, that was a time in my life that was uh, really traumatic. It was a time that um, I really questioned God, um, really couldn't understand how I could uh, God would allow us to have a, a son and allow us to only have him for two months and then take him. So I was in a really depressed state at that time. And let's talk about next, the uh, and this is the, the trauma that perhaps really sparks almost a new awakening in your life. Uh, but it may have been the low point as well, mm-hmm. and that's uh, being arrested uh, for drug charges. Mm-hmm. And and talk about that, uh, Sammy. How did this happen? How did how did the arrest occur? And what what was this like mm-hmm. for you, for your family, particularly, and and friends? Uh, what were you going through? Talk about these moments. Well, this was after my career, after a four year career. I was out of football, and uh, I had moved back home. I had left Denver. That was the last team I played for, and and. Uh, Certainly had had some traumatic uh, things happen with the loss of my son, with the with the way my career had ended, ended with an injury and uh, my performance. And 
And I came back to Florida wanting to do some positive things. I had started a company and was building homes for uh, people that couldn't afford homes, and we were holding mortgages, just trying to help people out in our community to be able to have nice homes. And uh, uh, I got around some friends. of once one particular friend that came to me and asked me, could he borrow some money? And I was well off, and I loaned him money. And it was less than a week later, he came back and paid me. You know, it was $10,000. And he paid me money on top of it. And, of course, I want to know how, how can you afford to pay me money like this? And and that's where it all got started. He was involved in drugs, and and I want to know more about it. And that's that's what the enemy does. When you're trying to live and, 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 the, and, the, and to do things the right way, the enemy will always come at you with some form of way of getting you back or getting his hooks in you. And uh, I made the choice to get involved with some friends and, uh, it would be 10 months later, man, I'm getting a knock on my door. It's the DEA. You know, I'm in some serious trouble. And uh, I really didn't know how I had allowed that to happen. That, that first night I got arrested, man, I, it was just mind-boggling to me that I had let that happen, that, that, that stepped that low into getting involved into something that I had never agreed with, had always encouraged these guys to try and do something better. And what I found myself was, man, my identity was always placed in sports and in football. And and, and, and I found during that time that um, that was God's way of, of, of allowing me to really see how important it was for my identity to be, be in him. And I, that first night I got arrested, man, I never forget sitting in the Orange County Jail. And uh, that's the first night that I was fully broken and knowing that, you know, man, there was another way for me. And I asked God to change me right then. And there, knowing what I was facing, uh, I apologized to God for how unfrugal I had been with all the gifts and talents that he had given me, and I asked him for another opportunity, whenever that was going to come, for me to be able to serve and to be a, a different person and to be able to make a difference in people's lives. Well, and you knew it right away, which was good, and, 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 and responded to that right away. And uh, the, the, the fact that you were an NFL athlete, well, the media had to just Eat this up, Sammy. I mean, sometimes you get disparate treatment in this great country because you're poor, Mm -hmm. sometimes because you're black, and sometimes because you're rich. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, you learn quickly that sometimes somebody like a Martha Stewart can find herself Mm -hmm. under the crossfire because she's Martha Stewart. Yes. And uh, talk about that, that media frenzy and what that felt like. Well, I can remember being able to watch some of it on the news from jail. And I can remember the, uh, the media being in our community and, and being in the communities that were close around, you know, Zellwood, Apopka, uh, Mount Dora, those areas, and kind of interviewing people. And, and people knew my character, and they they knew that that wasn't Sammy Smith. So you got all these people that, that loved me that were, you know, doing interviews saying, no way, they're, 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 you know, they're pinning this on Sammy. He would never do this. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no, I did it. And how, how did I allow this to happen? How did I allow the enemy to fool me like this? And it was hurtful. Um, you know, the, the, the local policemen uh, and the, and the uh, Metro Bureau of Investigative People and the sheriff, uh, they all painted the picture that I was this uh, kingpin of a drug dealer that had been involved in drugs for many years, which was certainly a, a lie. Uh, but I was the one with the name, you know, of all of my co-defendants. I was the one that was Sammy Smith. I was the NFL guy. I was the one that they was going to make the case on yep. and that it was going to be all in the newspaper. And I think I even had an article in Jet Magazine back then. So it was, it was. Uh, I tell you, it was pretty uh, humbling, um, 
And it was uh, something that, that really brought out humility in me to know that, uh, man, I, that, that could happen to me. It could happen to anyone. But I accepted my responsibility. I knew that I had made a, a horrible choice. And all I could do at that time was uh, ask for forgiveness, you know, and, and ask God to forgive me and my family to forgive me and uh, to just pray that uh, God would be lenient and I would be able to move on from that and then be able to make a difference. And I tell you, God, is, he's really done everything I've asked him. Well, when we come back, the rest of the story, this is the beautiful part of the story, and so many of our lives are informed this way. We have to dig ourselves or drive ourselves right into a ditch in order to find out what our lives are really all about, who our friends really are, and what life's all about. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Sammy Smith. And last time we were with you, uh, you'd heard about Sammy talking about, well, being in being in jail and knowing that, well, he had made some bad decisions. Uh, the press, of course, had done what the press always does, and the press is, well, it's always been the same way, wanting to make money off people's pain and suffering, and they'll always be that way. Uh, but Sammy had to deal with real life and his family and seeking forgiveness. And so, Sammy, you, you find yourself with a whole new set of uh, roommates uh, <laughs> in prison and a lot of guys who'd made some bad mm-hmm. choices, but human beings. And we talk a lot about inmates on this show here in Our American Stories because there, there are folks in these prisons and they need our attention. There are our brothers, there are our sisters, and they're friends. And mm-hmm. we, we've all made mistakes there before the grace of God go all of us in these measures. Um, what did you learn about so many of the people you were living with now for for and how many years were you living with him there? Well, Sammy? I was at uh, I was in federal prison for right at six years. Um, I started my uh, sentence in uh, Coleman Correctional Facility, a federal facility there in Florida, uh, which was probably an hour from my home, uh, which was a good spot because you know I got to see family all the time and my daughter. Uh, but man, you know, my heart went out to some of the. Uh, men that were in that facility, uh, young men, uh, old men, uh, um, people that weren't going to have a second chance. You know, I had, I got 87 month sentence, which was a little over seven years, but there were guys in there with life sentences for the same, uh, uh, distressions that I had, but some of them had multiple, you know, distressions. They were career guys and that had been in trouble all their lives. And, um, but man, what great people. I got an opportunity to meet some of the most genuine people uh, inside than I ever met outside. And I had an opportunity to really just kind of do life with them for 
the time I was in there to be able to share my experiences and to be able to share, um, you know, my shortcomings and be able to share, you know, how I believe God was changing me at that time and what he was going to do when I got out. And I think one of the most blessed opportunities I've had, and I've had a chance to speak on many occasions, was being able to go back to that same uh, facility that I started a sentence in 18 years prior and go back in and speak to young men that were in there and, and to let them know that there's hope and there's opportunities when you get out, uh, if you'll change your life and uh, decide to seek uh, God. And so much of, of that life, there isn't hope. Mm-hmm. There's not enough contact with the outside world. And there's certainly, Sammy, and this is a tough word for men to use, but there's not enough love. Mm-hmm. And so talk about that. And what, what did you start to do? Were you, were you uh, of, of the knowledge then that you had a ministerial quality to you, that you could minister mm-hmm. to other men? When did, this, when did this come upon you, that you had either this gift, this talent, or this desire? Well, I know while I was there, I started seeking God and I started asking, you know, you know, how can I make a difference, God? What would you want me to do when, when this is all is open over and when the door is open for me to leave here? And uh, I knew that I had a story to tell. I knew that God was going to bless me tremendously. I knew that I would be able to put my life back together because God promised that, you know. And uh, so when I got out, I still was a little. Um, Shaky, you know. I still was kind of concerned with what people thought, and you know, man, did they look at me as that's that's Sammy Smith? He had it all, and he threw it away, away, you know. And and so I still had those little reservations, you know. And then um, I got blessed, to be honest with you, man, to meet a wonderful woman when I got out, and uh, we start dating, and I start hearing some of her story, and I start thinking to myself, man, how how could I'm sitting here in self pity with everything that. Uh, my future wife, who's my wife now, had, had gone through, and uh, uh, I was getting opportunities to share and to speak, and I would always choose the little things. You know, I was getting opportunities to speak at big events, but I was trying to find the little things just to speak to a few kids, and and uh, i never forget, it was probably not 2010, uh, the FCA director for Orlando area had found my number some kind of way, and he called me and asked me would I come and share at the Capital One Bowl uh, FCA breakfast and it was Alabama and Michigan State playing in the game and I remember hanging you know telling him before hanging up hey I'm gonna have to check my schedule I'm not sure I can I'll be available to do that and it was gonna be a thousand people there at this event right and I hung the phone up with him and immediately God spoke to me and said how long are you gonna hold in the testimony that I've given you I'm giving you opportunity after opportunity to share you promised me when you were in prison you was gonna share your testimony and I call wave Robinson is his name. I called him right back within less than five minutes. And I told him that I was clear and that I I could do it. And I tell you, that event really changed my life. Just being able to go there and to share that. I I saw that God had given me something through the experiences that I had gone through that could be positive and that could help other people out. And uh, I've been sharing ever since. You know, and that little thing, that little voice that stops you from sharing, of course, is pride. Mm-hmm. And we know that that pride tries to separate us from other people. Yes. And like it look like we're more important, we're better. And then the second we let go of that pride, it's when we start to connect yes. with other human beings. We play uh, an hour on Chuck Colson every year. He's one of my personal heroes. Mm-hmm. And what happened to him in prison and how we learned that he'd been just living this wretched, prideful life. Yeah. And that once he was able to testify about his shortcomings, suddenly he had friends for the yes. first time. He had relationships for the first time. And his faith in, in, in God brought him so much closer, not just to, mm-hmm. to, to friends that he lost, 
but to friends he'd never knew he'd had. Yes. Uh, and it was beautiful. And they weren't his friends because he was Mr. Powerful Lawyer at the White House. Right. And they weren't your friends because you were Mr. Running Back at the Miami Dolphins. You were just Sammy. That's right. Sammy the guy. That's right. And uh, that's so hard. Tell us a little bit about your bride. Here's this woman who uh, I, I would only uh, venture to guess blew you away because here she is loving a guy who's just, as some people would see it, blown it all. And, well, you, you had a criminal record, and she's offering you the kind of love that you, you can only ask for in life, which is unconditional mm-hmm. love. No judgment. Finding you at a point in your life that's mm-hmm. got to be as, you know, just coming out of prison, having lost everything, a really difficult place to be. And there she is with open arms. Uh, talk a bit about her. Well, um, I was on supervised release at the time. That's when, you know, I was at a halfway house and you get a opportunity to go home on the weekends. I think I had about five or six months of halfway house time. So I was in Tampa, Florida, and then I would get a furlough or whatever, a weekend pass to go home. And it just so happened one of those weekends I was home, uh, my wife now, Shalanda, uh, had come to our home. My dad, God bless his soul, he just passed this August, but he worked for a tile company. And whenever they had discontinued tile, he would get, you know, crates of tile. And he had a big uh, storage shed in the back that we kept it in. And people got to know my dad as the tile man. And uh, she had just built a home and uh, had come over with uh, a couple of other friends of hers looking for Sammy Smith Sr., my dad. And they were looking at tile, and she was trying to find some tile for her house. And I saw her, and I was like, wow, you know. And I ended up asking one of my cousins about her that that knew the other two people that she was with. And and he knew her, and he told me, you know, she's a a wonderful young lady. Um, She's got a son. Um, she's single, but she's got a great heart. She's a Christian, and I wanted to meet her. And so we arranged to be able to meet, and uh, she gave me a little hard time there for a little while. She was kind of ducking me, but uh, I was persistent. And then we started dating, and uh, life has been just amazing ever since. Uh, we've been married now for 13, 13 years, and then we dated for probably three or four years prior. So for all the families that have somebody in, in, in the system, uh, or, or they know a kid who's about to go into that system. We know the kids. You know, the teachers know. They know the kids who are mm-hmm. going to probably end up in jail. A lot of them are fatherless. Some of them have fathers, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are fatherless. And then others, well, they have some friends that are questionable and might lead mm-hmm. them to these places. And so um, we, we, we personally in our family have a, a nephew who's in, 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 in prison mm-hmm. here in the state of Mississippi, and we, we visit him and we pray for him, and he's made some bad choices, and he's trying to straighten up his life. But without that communication from the outside world, he'd have no choice and no chance, I don't think. Um, talk to, to the family members who are going through this, because it's tough. I mean, the, the family has to deal with all the outside world, their opinions, their chattering, their gossiping. Uh, some advice to family members who have family in prison, and also to total strangers mm-hmm. um, who live near a prison and might be able to just go and visit some of these men and women locked up. So some advice to people listening. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the Word of God tells us to love our neighbors. And, uh, um, you know, these young men and these young women that are in situations that have gotten them into prison, uh, they need love. Uh, they don't need their families to turn their backs on them. They, they don't need their friends uh, to turn their backs on them. They need those uh, people that are that are out in the world and, uh, and that are um, living life to, to continue to pray for them, uh, to continue to support them, to, to continue to encourage them, and to just be there for them. You know, you know God works in mysterious ways. Uh, 
I think, you know, in, in retrospect, I would never choose to want to have to go through what I went through, but I would not choose it if it got me to where I'm at today. So in other words, I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity I had to get in trouble and go to prison because it made me the man that I am today. And uh, that's what I pray for, for people that are in prison, that, that whatever uh, God has in store for them that needs to be worked out and that's the route that he sent them, that his work will be done and that they'll, they'll come out whole and uh, be able to have productive lives. But they certainly need the support of uh, their family and their friends. Well, on those notes, Sammy, thank you for sharing the story. Sammy Smith's story, and by the way, his bride's story, and his family's story, a redemptive story, a story of love, and a great Christian story here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 